would you open with me in your copy of God's Word to the book of Exodus? You don't have a Bible, you can make use of the one that should be somewhere nearby you in the seat back in front of you. You may also be helped to know that the portion of Scripture we're on this morning, you can find in page 55 of that hardback Bible. Exodus chapter 17. Exodus 17. Let's begin reading there in verse 8. Then Amalek came and fought with Israel at Rephidim. So Moses said to Joshua, choose for us men and go out and fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on top of the hill which with the staff of God in my hand. So Joshua did as Moses told him and fought with Amalek while Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. Whenever Moses held up his hand, Israel prevailed. And whenever he lowered his hand, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands grew weary. So they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it, while Aaron and Hur held up his hands, one on one side, the other on the other side. So his hands were steady until the going down of the sun, and Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the sword. Then the Lord said to Moses, Write this as a memorial in a book and recite it in the ears of Joshua, that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar and called the name of it, The Lord is my banner, saying, A hand upon the throne of the Lord. The Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. Would you join with me in asking that God would help us to not only hear his word with our ears, but also to receive it with hearts prepared in meekness. Our Father, how greatly we need your voice in our life. How greatly we need your counsel and your wisdom. So, Father, we pray that you would help us to hear and to receive, that you would speak clearly and plainly through your word, that you would be faithful and gracious to use me for the means that you have intended, and, Lord, that you would bring about your good purposes in our lives as the result of your ministry of spirit and word, we pray. Amen. One of the great doctrines of Scripture which Christians continually take refuge in is the certainty of God's providence. For as we turn the pages of our Bibles, what we quickly discover is that God is most certainly the creator of all things. And as the creator, it's in his infinite power and wisdom that he upholds, directs, arranges, and governs all creatures and all things. This sovereign power that we read about, it extends to the, to the greatest forces, to the most highest authorities in all of the earth, all the way down to the most infinite, to the most insignificant, to the most minuscule, and even unnoticeable to the human eye. And it's really by this mysterious work of God's providence that we see something more of God's wisdom, that we learn something more of his power, of his justice, of his infinite goodness, and even as we've heard about this morning, his mercy. And yet, 
there's another equally as astonishing and true emphasis of Scripture. In that, in his ordinary providence, God uses means. We read in our Bibles that God certainly saves his people by his own electing grace. And God chooses to do so ordinarily through human voices proclaiming the good news. God promises that his people need not be anxious over daily needs such as food and clothing because he will provide. And yet, ordinarily, he does so through the means of working a job. And here in Exodus, God has promised that he would bring his people out of bondage in order to bring them into the promised land. But how is he going to do this? Would he just mysteriously teleport them out of Egypt and into the promised land? Would it be that they would just one night in Egypt close their eyes and the next morning wake up in Canaan? God could do that. This chapter, though, tells us something very important. This chapter really serves as a preview of how God will do this, as well as his faithful testimony that he most certainly will. The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, graciously and sovereignly delivers his people. That is undeniable in the book of Exodus. And yet, here in this portion of Scripture, we are to notice the various means by which God brings about this sort of victory. This is sort of a preview of what God is doing in the book of Exodus, what God will continue to do in the book of Joshua, what God will continue to do through the Davidic kings, and what God continues to do in the lives of his people today. Yes, he delivers, and yet he chooses so often to use means. What are the means that we see here in this portion of Scripture? Well, we learn something about prayerful dependence. There's a joyful testimony that's given, we'll read of. And then lastly, essential wisdom. Prayerful dependence, joyful testimony, and essential wisdom. The means that God provides. Let's see how this unfolds. Look back at the portion that we just read, considering the end of chapter 17. What we are calling prayerful dependence. The emphasis here in these nine verses, verses 8 through 16, has to do with the power of God to protect his people. God brought them out of Egypt by this mighty hand. He provided for them amidst their grumbling and then their, their disobedience. And now they face a new trial, Amalek. The Amalekites are the descendants of Esau. As you read through your Old Testament, you find that they become this perpetual enemy of God's people. Just as Esau hated Jacob, Amalek takes up the fight against Jacob's sons. Their assaults are recorded not only here in Exodus, but you'll see them again in the wilderness. You'll see them again as they attempt to enter Canaan. Throughout the book of Judges, the Amalekites continue to rise up. If you remember anything about Saul... Malachites play a part there again. They continually become this perpetual enemy of God's people. Their assaults here are recorded in the wilderness as they uh, attempt to move forward. And this particular attack, it's actually a surprise attack. And Moses brings it up again later 
in the book of Deuteronomy reminding the people, chapter 25, remember what Amalek did to you on the way as you came out of Egypt. How he attacked you on the way when you were faint and when you were weary. And he cut off your tail, those who were lagging behind you. And he did not fear God. Meaning Amalek came up from behind this million or so people and sought out who? The weak, the faint-hearted, those who were behind and began to take advantage of God's people because he did not fear God. This attack and God's intervention with Amalek serves really just sort of a preview for us as to how God will protect his people as they journey onward. Now notice what happens here. We're not just simply told that the Lord was victorious over Amalek. We're actually told how. How was God victorious over Amalek? Well, maybe you noticed when we read there was a repeated word in verses 8 through 16. The repetition of the word hand serves as a clue, showing up seven times in those nine verses. Just look back at verse 11. Whenever Moses held up his hand, Israel prevailed. Whenever he lowered his hand, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands grew weary, so they took a stone, put it under him, and he sat on it. While Aaron and Hur held up his hands, one on one side, the other on the other side, so his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. Okay? But equally as important is what is in the hand of Moses. Well, that's verse 9. Moses said to Joshua, choose for us men and go out and fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. Now, the staff of God plays this really significant role in the Exodus narrative. Most recently, God directed Moses, just in the section above, to use this same staff to strike the rock so that water would pour out and satisfy God's people. And again... This staff essentially serves as the visible representation of God's power and God's presence with his people. Back in chapter 4, verse 17, before the plagues, before the Exodus, before the Passover, remember all the way back then, God in Exodus 4 gave Moses clear direction. He said, take in your hand this staff, which you shall do these signs. God was going to bring these judgments, bring these plagues, bring these mighty acts of power upon Egypt, and he would do so through this staff being the visible display of God's power and presence with his people. It's actually even referred to as the staff of God. You'd think they would call it the staff of Moses, and it is sometimes, but it's also called, it's the staff of God that Moses holds in his hands. And so what do we have? This combination of a lifted staff and outstretched hands, it would become, it had to have been, this ingrained image in the people of God that when Moses does this, oh, look out. Because when else has Moses lifted up his staff and lifted up his hands? Well, most recently, back in Exodus 14, God commands Moses, lift up your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it that the people of Israel might go through the sea on dry ground. There's something happening here that when Moses lifts up this staff and lifts up his hands, that God is present and his power and glory is clearly seen. 
the Lord will fight for his people. But in this instance, he's not working independently of Moses or of Israel. God is working through means. The staff of God is the display of his power, and when it's raised, God's people are victorious. But this staff has to be held up by lifted hands. And so when Moses gets weary, they get creative. Let's find a rock. He can sit down. Um, Aaron, you stand here. Her, you stand here. Let's hold up the hands. Here we go. They get creative, and Joshua prevails. He overwhelms Amalek. The Lord's victorious. And this image of a lifted banner, a lifted staff, becomes the very same image that Moses uses when he builds this altar, this sacrifice of praise unto the Lord at the end of this battle. In verse 15, he names this altar, the Lord is my banner. And you need to understand that when he says that, it's a military term. The Lord is the battle standard, the battle flag that would serve as really as a rally point for troops. Think back to medieval battle. There's no drones. There's no infrared. You're on a battle, screen, battle scene. How do you know where your commander is? How do you know where your team is? How do you know where you are in all of the chaos in the midst of the battlefield? Well, you would have a standard. You would have a banner that would say, this is where you are. So it was a rallying point, and it was really also an aid to keep your bearings as to where you are. And so what does Moses say through this? What is our battle flag? What ultimately is the standard that we fight under? What is our rallying point? What is our point of reference in all of this? Yahweh. The Lord is my banner. Now, the Hebrew in verse 16 is challenging, but the essence, it's communicated really well here in our English Bibles. As Moses lifts up his hands to the throne or to the authority of God, the Lord has victory or the Lord wages war against Amalek. What Moses is saying is that it was the staff of God that brought the victory, but it was by lifted hands. As he lifts his hands to the Lord, the Lord brings victory. The attack of the enemy is pushed back by the might of God, but it's accomplished through lifted hands. Think about the implications of this. The issue becomes even more urgent in the New Testament when we read something about our war, something about our battle. Our battle is not against flesh and blood. Our battle is a spiritual battle that requires spirit-endowed armor. And what's the purpose of this armor? This is where Christians can get very confused. What is the purpose of the spiritual armor that God has given to us? For one, I think it's very significant of what Paul mentions in context of all of this armor. In verse 11 of chapter 6, we're commanded to put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. And he lists the various pieces of armor. And then verse 18, that we must never forget that it remains attached to this entire list, praying at all times in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. That we are in a spiritual battle, not against flesh, 
and the necessary armor that's given to us is provided that we might stand and that we might stand through faithful praying, persevering prayers, supplication. It's no wonder that the lifting of hands has become synonymous with lifting our voices to God in prayer. Because human voices lifting up prayers to God is the greatest expression of dependence upon God that God's people can show. Do you realize that's what prayer is? The greatest expression of your dependence upon God is through prayer. God fights for his people, but God also uses means. That's why we pray. To neglect prayer, to refuse prayer, to become so busy that we fail to pray, whether we intend to or not, we are essentially declaring, God, I don't need you. And so when we read in our Bibles in private worship, we naturally respond in prayer. Praising him, confessing sin, giving thanks, asking. And as we gather corporately in corporate worship, we pray as an expression of our great dependence upon God. It's for good reason that we order our service the way that we do, that we're hearing from God in His Word, that we're speaking back to God in prayer, that we're singing psalms and hymns and spiritual psalms, instructing one another, that at the heart of this is not only the announcement of who God is, but as God's people gather our response to Him in the prayers that we pray. Church, could I lovingly exhort you for a moment? The fact that we set aside the Lord's Day evening for prayer, it's not done as an elective course that's just to fill a few credits. If prayer is the greatest expression of our dependence upon God, then what do our Sunday evenings testify of? Do you long to know the joy of victory in battle? Do you grow very weary in, in your fight against sin, against worldly wisdom that batters you about six days out of seven? If that is true, then remember that we gather to pray certain that the victory is the Lord's, And the reason we pray is that we understand if I do not lift hands to him, I will not survive. Church, the Lord is our banner. He is is our rallying point. He's the flag that we wave amidst the, the carnage of the battle. And we unite our voices in prayer and we say, you are our banner. You are our refuge. That's why we unite our voices and we begin to pray things like, oh, mighty God. You're the one who splits the seas. You deliver your people. To you alone we bow. So we come to you in the name of this great Redeemer. And we we plead for your intervention. Father, we're praying, help us, provide for us, sustain us, revive us, glorify your name. You see, the rallying point for prayer is not some oppressive burden of things that we do, but it's when we understand how dependent we are that we We cannot but help run to the rallying flag, running to the banner and saying, our help is in the name of the Lord. 
He will be victorious. And we cast our cares upon him. What sort of great victory and gracious fruit might we see in our midst if we would but cast our cares upon him? Who knows what the Lord would be pleased to do as we put our trust in him? And so we take up and read of the glorious victory that's wrought by the power of God for the people of God that wait dependently upon him. So God uses prayerful dependence, but he also seems to be doing something else. How he's communicating this victory is not only through prayerful dependence, but also through this joyful testimony. Look back at your Bibles and look now at chapter 18. Verse 1, Jethro, the priest of Midian, Moses' father-in-law, heard of all that God had done for Moses and for Israel, his people, and how the Lord had brought Israel out of Egypt. Now Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, had taken Zipporah, Moses' wife, after he had sent her home, along with her two sons. The name of the one was Gershom, for he said, I have been a sojourner in the foreign land. The name of the other was Eliezer, for he said, The God of my father was my help and delivered me from the sword of Pharaoh. Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, came with his sons and his wife to Moses in the wilderness where he was encamped at the mountain of God. And when he sent word to Moses, I, your father-in-law Jethro, am coming to you with your wife and her two sons with her. Moses went out to meet his father-in-law and bowed down and kissed him. And they asked each other of their welfare and went into the tent. Then Moses told his father-in-law of all that the Lord had done to Pharaoh and the Egyptians for Israel's sake, and all the hardship that had come upon them in the way, and how the Lord had delivered them. And Jethro rejoiced for all the good that the Lord had done to Israel and that he had delivered them out of the hand of the Egyptians. And Jethro said, Blessed be the Lord, who has delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians and out of the hand of Pharaoh, and has delivered the people from under the hand of the Egyptians. Now I know that the Lord is greater than all gods, because in this affair they dealt arrogantly with the people. And Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, brought a burnt offering and sacrifices to God, And Aaron, with all the elders of Israel, came to eat bread with Moses' father-in-law before God. Now, if you've been reading through this Exodus narrative, you know that Jethro, he plays a significant role in really critical moments in Moses' life. Back in Exodus 2, Jethro first shows up. And there, Jethro takes Moses. He receives Moses into his own home as Moses is fleeing. And Moses gives him his daughter Zipporah in the hand of marriage, and Moses begins to work for his father-in-law by keeping his flock. Now here, in chapter 18, the family's reunited, and the reason for this reuniting is their, and their meeting with Jethro is that Jethro has heard of all that God has done. That's what it says in verse 1, chapter 18. Now notice something. This reunion, this moment right here, is the fulfillment of exactly what God said he was going to do through Pharaoh. Remember what that was? It was back in Exodus chapter 9 where God said in verse 16, But for this purpose I have raised you up 
Pharaoh, to show you my power so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. So what this means is that God is making himself known through his judgments upon Egypt and upon Pharaoh, making himself known not only to Egypt, not only to Israel, not only to Moses, but God said that through this, my name is going to be proclaimed in all the earth, that all the nations might know who I am through this. And here, this Midianite, because that's who Jethro is, this Midianite priest hears of what God has done, He seeks out his son-in-law to hear more. So Moses tells him of all that the Lord has done. Verse 8. He speaks of the hardship, and he tells him of the deliverance. And now that Jethro has heard, what is his response? Well, Jethro rejoiced. Verse 9. He rejoiced for all the good that the Lord had done. And then he testifies this in verse 10. Blessed be the Lord who's delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians and out of the hand of Pharaoh and has delivered the people from under the hand of the Egyptians. Now I know that the Lord, that Yahweh, is greater than all the gods because in this affair they dealt arrogantly with the people. The testimony of the Lord, it's sounding forth and the nations are coming to rejoice in all that he has done. This is just a preview of what God is doing in his salvation, to be proclaimed in all the world. That what he does, salvation through judgment for his glory, that that not only saves his people, but it's a testimony to the nation. And that very act is what provokes the nations to come as they hear, I've heard what the Lord has done. And they bring tribute. And here we are today, some 3,000 years later, 7,500 or so miles away, from Egypt, proclaiming God's name for what he has done for providing and protecting his people in Christ. The very same thing of what we are doing this morning is the result of what God not only pictured in Egypt, but what God has ultimately done upon Calvary. So I'm saying all of this to draw your attention to something very important. Take note of what this means. Take note of the means of what God uses to draw people to himself. It's not the glossy marketing brochure that Jethro received in his mailbox. It's not the luxurious building that Israel dwelt in. It wasn't the great, pristine location that seems to have water issues. What drew him was the testimony of God's deliverance of his people. The testimony of God's almighty and gracious provision is a powerful message. Romans 1.16, we know well. Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God. Salvation for everyone who believes. The gospel is power. It's the power of God. It's the display and the announcement, the communication of God's great power for all who believe. What did Jesus say in John 12 about his very ministry when he said, and when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. When he would be lifted up upon Calvary that looks like the emblem of defeat, he says, no, that's actually the very message, the very historical event that 
will draw his people to himself. 1 Corinthians 1.23, when Paul writes to the Corinthian church, he says, But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. What draws the nations to hear of this great God and to testify of his worth? His power and promise to save his people. So let me ask you, do you want to see the name of God lifted up in all nations, joyfully testifying that Yahweh, that the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is greater than all? Well, if you do, then friends, speak clearly and speak boldly about the deliverance that God brings. That's the means that God uses to glorify himself among all the nations. Tell others of the hardship and of the burden of sin. Speak to them of the deliverance, just as Moses did, the deliverance from bondage through the death of the Lamb, who is Jesus Christ, slain for sinners. Tell them how they can be spared from the wrath of God by trusting in the blood of that Lamb and to warn people with all sincerity that unless they do, they too will face the wrath of God. That's the message. That's what exalts Christ That's what causes the nations to come flooding to hear and to proclaim this is the message. This is the hope. Blessed be God. And that's what we are doing this morning, really in the corporate gathering of God's people. If you're new to this church, or if you're uncertain as to what Christianity is really about, then we would urge you to listen to the testimony of God's people. Maybe the person who invited you here or who brought you here, you've heard of maybe a little bit about their testimony, how God brought them to Christ. What we're doing this morning is essentially an amplification of that one person that you know, where we are testifying saying, he has brought us to himself by his great power and by his great mercy. What we're testifying is that the Lord is a rescuer, that he's a deliverer from the bondage of sin and from the certainty of judgment, and that he promises that everyone who looks to Jesus Christ in faith by turning from their sin and turning to him experiences that very same deliverance. That is the message that we proclaim, and that is the message, the joyful testimony that God uses to glorify himself. Prayerful dependence joyful testimony, but there's one other means that God reveals in this passage. Look back at verse 18, now verse 13. Here we read, the next day Moses sat to judge the people, and the people stood around Moses from morning till evening. When Moses' father-in-law saw all that he was doing for the people, he said, What is this that you are doing for the people? Why do you sit alone and all the people stand around uh, around you from morning till evening? And Moses said to his father-in-law, Because the people come to me and inquire of God. When they have a dispute, they come to me, and I decide between one person and another, and I make them to know the statutes of God and his laws. Moses' father-in-law said to him, What you're doing is not good. You and the people with you 
will certainly wear themselves out, for the thing is too heavy for you. You are not able to do it alone. Now obey my voice, and I will give you advice, and God be with you. You shall represent the people before God and bring their cases to God. And you shall warn them about the statutes and the laws and make them to know the way in which they must walk and what they must do. Moreover, look for able men from among all the people, men who fear God, who are trustworthy and hate a bribe and place such men over the people as chiefs of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties and tens, and let them judge the people at all times. Every great matter they shall bring to you, but any small matter they shall decide themselves. So it will be easier for you They will bear the burden with you. If you do this, God will direct you. You will be able to endure. And the people also will go to their place in peace. So Moses listened to the voice of his father-in-law and did all that he had said. Moses chose able men out of Israel and made them heads over the people of chiefs and thousands and hundreds and fifties and tens. And they judged the people at all times. Any hard case they brought to Moses, but any small matter they decided themselves. And then Moses let his father-in-law depart, and he went away to his own country. Prayerful dependence, joyful testimony, essential wisdom. God saves his people, delivers his people, and one of the means that he uses here is this essential wisdom. One of my favorite things to hear of is when single people tell me just how busy their lives are. And I usually, hopefully, smile warmly, compassionately, and nod, and anticipate the day that, Lord willing, they get married, have a few kids, work a job, maybe two. Because we know being responsible for yourself is hard work. Not saying that. Being responsible for other people, that's harder work. Being responsible for a million people, that's impossible work. Moses, the leader of God's people, at this point, at least a million strong, is going to burn himself out. He's standing as the arbitrator for every single case that he's brought. And as his father-in-law continues to spend time here at this family camp out, he scratches his head, observing what's going on, and he pulls his son-in-law aside and said, what are you doing? And Moses says, well, there's great need. That's essentially what he says. The need dictates what I'm doing. Moses, this plan is not good. He just bluntly says, you're going to wear yourself out. You're going to wear the other people out. You're not able to do this alone. And so what's his counsel? What's the essential wisdom? You need to spread the load out a bit, Moses. Verse 19, he says, now obey my voice and I'll give you some advice, like a good father-in-law would do. You shall represent the people before God. Bring their cases to God. You shall warn them about the statutes and the laws and make them know the way in which they must walk and they must do. Now notice, this is a mixture here of priestly and prophet duties and what Moses is to be doing. To represent the people before the Lord, like a prophet or like a priest. And then to turn and instruct them and tell them, instruct them in the law and what they should do and how they must live. Moses, you need to be doing those things. 
You shall warn them. You shall teach them. Represent them before the Lord. And what's the result going to be? Well, verse 23, God's going to direct you. He's going to keep leading you. You will be able to endure. And the people are going to dwell in peace. This is good. Now, what do we see from this? What we see is that one of the ways that God provides for his people is by giving us wisdom. And one of the ways that God provides wisdom is by giving us wise counselors. Sometimes it comes from unexpected places, like your in-laws. Don't overlook the unexpected places. Wisdom given from godly counselors is a gift from God. And one that we desperately need. So that's why we ought to be and continue to pray that God would fill our church with those sort of lives who are shaped by God's word and whose counsel is in line with God's word because that's a gracious gift that we need. And a mark of wisdom is to seek out and to listen to such counsel. The opposite is to think yourself so wise and to trust in your own perception to such a high degree or your own experience, your own research, or your own knowledge, and to not seek out wise counsel. And Proverbs warns against that as well. Proverbs 26, 12, do you see a man who's wise in his own eyes? There's more hope for a fool than for him. If you're not in the habit of seeking out wise counsel and receiving wise counsel, I would exhort you to form this habit. And if you happen to look around and you don't see anybody in your life like that, then I would equally exhort you to find these sort of people, beginning with the members of this church. Seek out those around you that God has provided. You could even take Moses' instruction here, those who fear God, those who are proven to be trustworthy, those who live exemplary lives, and they might not look like you. Remember, this is Moses' father-in-law, a Midianite priest who now is boasting in Yahweh. Who has God placed in your life? God has graciously deposited good wisdom in their life that God might use as the means to help you. Because there's so many decisions that we make that we often make apart from wise counsel. The obvious ones, as we just chronologically think through the life of a person, who should I date? Who should I marry? Should I take this new job? Should I move to this new city? Should I leave this church and join another? How do I resolve conflict with a family member? How do I resolve conflict with a coworker? So many decisions that we're faced on a day-to-day basis, and God has proven himself faithful by not only giving us instruction in that, by giving us the means to obtain that instruction, often through godly counsel of other people. Just think in my own life how many areas of conflict or unneeded crisis could have been avoided or mitigated had I just sought counsel in this way. Perhaps you can think of some of those same examples. Jethro was right. What Moses was doing was not good. Not only was Moses unable to do it alone, the people are going to suffer as well. Because the line's going around the block and around the corner. It's like, how long have you been waiting? I've lost count. Well, we got to ask Moses. The people are, they're getting exasperated and worn out. Jethro says, this is not good. 
because Moses is prevented from doing what he ought to be doing and the people are not being served as they ought. So God provides essential wisdom through godly counsel. But what's interesting is this is not the only place in Scripture where this sort of pattern comes along, where we see this sort of wisdom played out. It's interesting, the same sort of concern seen also in Acts chapter 6. The same pattern of corrective wisdom that serves God's people and enables God's leaders. If you remember in Acts 6, the apostles are being pulled away from their ministry of prayer and the word for the pressing need, the legitimate need, of distributing food to the widows. And it's so essential that the determining decision is to choose seven men from among yourselves, men of good repute, full of the Holy Spirit, and put them in charge of this duty, and we will give ourselves, we will continue to be devoted to the ministry of prayer and the word. See the same sort of pattern in Titus 1.5 as Paul gives wise instructions to Titus to put things in order and see that elders are appointed in every town. So we're concerned with the gospel going forth. People are getting saved. Churches are being established. Healthy churches need pastors. See the same emphasis in Ephesians 4, where Paul instructs the church at Ephesus, reminding them that God gifts his church with the ministry of the word. He's done that throughout, really, all of redemptive history, whether that was prophets that he sent, apostles, in our present day, pastors, teachers. And why does God give gifts of the ministry of the word? Ah, to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, so that the church of God would be built up, every joint supplied with what it needs, so that the body would be built up in love. There's that same sort of organizational emphasis, this godly wisdom that says it's going to be good for you and it's going to be peaceable for them. That God gives and God provides and God uses the means of good counsel. God has given Veritas Church essential wisdom because we know that no one person can do it alone. The burden is to be shared so that pastors are enabled to endure and so that the people dwell in peace. And in God's wisdom, he gives to us instructions from his word for the ordering and for the equipping of his church. And so that's why we continue to pray, not because we forget that we pray them, but because we want to continue and repeatedly pray these two things, that God would graciously gift us more elders. And that God would faithfully grow us as a body in spiritual maturity. Because when God graciously gives more pastors or elders and he grows a body in spiritual wisdom, it endures. The people dwell in peace. The body is built up in love. And God is glorified. So this same essential wisdom that is patterned here is is given to us throughout Scripture. So can I just ask you in passing, would you, if you're not already, commit to praying in this way? I mean, here's just a really simple example. If we're prayerfully dependent upon God's provision and he says this is essential wisdom, then we can just connect these two points and say, well, let's prayerfully depend upon God and ask for this sort of essential wisdom. This is an easy one. God, as we look ahead to this coming year, one of the great needs that we see are that you would gift us. Men and women of wisdom that can provide good counsel and men of character gifted to serve as faithful pastors. 
God, would you graciously provide for us through those means? That we would dwell in peace? That our leaders would endure? That your name would be glorified? So how good it is to see that our journey towards heaven is a shared burden. That we're not doing it alone. Single moms, you are not doing this alone. Single dads, you are not doing this alone. If you are widowed, you are not doing this alone. If all you can see is your own circus and your own monkeys, you are not doing this alone. The body has been given to us to share this burden in God's essential wisdom. And when we do, we experience exactly what Jethro described. God directs us, our leaders endure, and the people of God go forward in peace. God proves his faithful care of his people by giving them essential wisdom in a way that we walk worthy of our calling. Church, God has promised that he would bring his people out of bondage in order to bring us into the promised land, to what he's given to us, our eternal home, the celestial city, whose builder and maker is God. And we are gathered here this very morning proclaiming the same testimony of Jethro, We bless the Lord because we are those who are saying he's delivered his people out from under the bondage of slavery. And greater than that, who is like our God? There is no one like him. He is greater than all. He's delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. The Lord is the one who fights for us. And yet he calls us to express our dependence upon him, pleading his work through the ministry of prayer. The Lord is the one who builds his church. And yet he calls us to order our lives and his church according to the wisdom of Scripture. God's providence over all things. And God's wisdom to use means to accomplish his great purposes. May God... Continue to work in us to will and to do his good pleasure so that as we testify of his goodness and his wisdom, that we are found trusting in his means. Let's pray that he would graciously do that in our lives. Father, we thank you for the good wisdom that you give to us in your word. Thank you for the patterns, the images, the clear teaching and instruction that comes to us from your revelation. Lord, we ask that you would give us clarity in all of these things, that you would order our lives according to your sound word, and that you would receive the glory in the way that lives are not only well-ordered, but radically transformed, being brought out of darkness and into your marvelous light. Father, continue to be faithful to your promise. Continue to sustain us, provide us, that you may continue to receive all the glory in your gracious work among us. Amen.